Let's pray together our opening prayer for Ecclesiastes. It's on the first page. Lord, give us life as we seek you and your kingdom with a whole heart, as we attempt to fear you and keep your commandments. Let our life be found in Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, as we walk in the arena of God's great mysteries. And our text today is Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 3. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Um, there's something alternately depressing and refreshing about the way that Ecclesiastes describes the world. So when the teacher talks about the tears of the oppressed and that there's no one to comfort the power that is on the side of, uh, there's no one to comfort the tears of the oppressed, that power is on the side of the oppressors, it's a description of something true, something we recognize. And this isn't a psalm where the author is crying out for salvation from the oppression or praising God in spite of it. There's the observation of tears, the observation of the power dynamic and the lack of comfort. This passage doesn't call out for deliverance or justice or mercy. Instead, it says, again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So there's no call to action or to hope. There's this observation. It's that evil is done under the sun and that evil can be so awful that the dead are happier than the living and the unborn are better off than the living and the dead. And I've been thinking about this all week. One of the first things I notice is that repetition of they have no comforter. So the author sees the tears of the oppressed and sees they have no comforter. There's also power on the side of the oppressors. And again, the repetition, they have no comforter. Um, So the first instance, the first time no comforter is mentioned, it's pretty straightforward. It's the 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 oppressed. Um, It's the author noticing the crying oppressed and noticing the lack of comforter for them. It's a little ambiguous the second time. The second refrain around having no comforter seems also to refer to the oppressed, noticing power is on the side of the oppressors. There's still no comforter for the oppressed. But it's a little more ambiguous in both the English and the Hebrew. You could read it as also the oppressed have no comforter. So I'm not going to dwell on that too much, but I, I, I noticed it. And a couple of commentators that I read also noticed it. So I wanted to offer that for contemplation because I think it opens up the idea that perpetrating oppression and participating in the evil under the sun is something miserable, something that maybe would require a comforter. Um, I think the stronger reading is to assume that both refer to the lack of comfort for the crying and oppressed, but that hint of allusion to another layer of meaning I think is worth noticing. With that repetition of no comforter, um, 
it made me think of another place in the Bible with repeated references to having no comforter. Two sections of the Bible that have repeated references to no comfort. So readers and hearers familiar with Lamentations might recognize this refrain from the first chapter of the book. In it, in the book of Lamentations, Jerusalem is personified as a distraught fallen woman, a woman once powerful, a queen among the provinces who has fallen and become like a slave. So in this passage, Jerusalem is an unfaithful woman who cries out to God in recognition of that unfaithfulness and pleads for deliverance. And throughout that whole first chapter of Lamentations, there's this refrain, there is no one to comfort her. In Lamentations 1-2, it says, bitterly she weeps at night, the tears are on her cheeks, among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her, all her friends have betrayed her, they have all become enemies. In Lamentations 9, it says her fall was astounding. astounding. There was none to comfort her. In Lamentations 117, it, it again says her fall was astounding, astounding, and there was none to comfort her. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me, she says. So we have this story of Jerusalem suffering during the siege um, under, the Babylon, under Babylonian attack and unable to find a comforter. The book of Lamentations is full of crying out in grief and acknowledgement of Jerusalem's own unfaithfulness. And in that book, the oppression and suffering are a result of their own actions. But it's full of lament over this fact and contains a famous core of hope at its center about God's faithfulness and mercy. And then ends with this question of whether or not Jerusalem has been forgotten and forsaken by God. I think that's really interesting that there's these tied in allusions in Ecclesiastes to that in Lamentations. And I'm holding it in the back of my mind as I think of another section of the Bible. If you look up the word comfort in the Old Testament, one book shows up as just full of the word comfort, and it's the book of Job. So Job is another book in the wisdom literature tradition like Ecclesiastes. And if it's been a while since you've read it, I encourage you to read it this week in its entirety. entirety. But here's the summary. Job tells the story of an upright blameless man who honors God, Job. That's how he's described as upright and blameless, one who honors God. There's a scene early in the book that takes place in a meeting of the divine council. So we get this glimpse of supernatural beings meeting, and one of them, the Satan, the accuser, says that Job is only righteous because he's been rewarded, because he's been so blessed by God. He has wealth, he has family, he has social status. And the accuser says that if those things are taken away, he wouldn't be the righteous man he is now. So God allows all of those things to be stripped away from Job. And after a series of disasters take his family property and his health, three friends show up to comfort him. And over and over, the word comfort is used in the story. So we we have this image of someone who is receiving comfort, but it turns out that with the brief exception of um, a moment at the beginning where they sit in silence covered with ashes, grieving with Job, they are terrible comforters. So their efforts to comfort Job consist of trying to make sense of his suffering and then drawing wrong conclusions about what's actually happening as they try to explain it. Job asserts that he is innocent and his suffering is not a result of divine justice. But his his friends, they assert that God is just and that the world runs according to justice. So they conclude that either Job must have sinned or that suffering may be a way to avoid future sin because it builds character. And Job actually calls them miserable comforters. They mean well, but their human sight and logic are limited. And 
his unearned suffering has comforters present. They just are really bad at the job. Um, So that's not the only point of connection between the passage I read in Ecclesiastes, our text this week, and the book of Job. Um, In Ecclesiastes, after we... Uh, after we notice that there are no comforters present, we read, and I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And Job says something really similar in chapter three, after he's been through his great losses and his friends have come to comfort him and they've been sitting in silence for a week because his grief is so great. His first words are, So after this, from Job 3, he opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness and may God not have a care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year nor entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shadow of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark, and may it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruin, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. So in his great suffering, Job wishes he would die. He curses the day of his birth, curses the day of his conception, wishes the day didn't exist, and says it would better would have been better to never have been born. So we have all of these images then tied into Ecclesiastes, all of these images of suffering and lack of comfort, and this idea that death is better than the sorts of suffering endured here on earth. And that idea is familiar. We still say um, when our loved ones... Um, when our loved ones lose loved ones, we talk about suffering being over. We talk about them being in a better place. So we still have this acknowledgement that um, we imagine death better than life, that suffering can be so intense that there is a longing for death. And here we have Job and the teacher in Ecclesiastes noticing a lack of comfort in suffering and this acknowledgement that they'd prefer not to have been born and not to ha- not to experience or to see the evil done under the sun. And if we haven't already had that thought around our own suffering or the suffering of others, there's a good chance that someday we will. I'm grateful for this honesty from Job and here in Ecclesiastes about the depth of suffering experienced on earth, about the lack of comfort and the presence of truly miserable comforters. But all three of these texts, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Job have another thread in common And I think there is something in each of these texts that pulls us to hope. In Lamentations, um, there's no one to comfort Jerusalem. They cry out for comfort, and there's no one to comfort. But Jerusalem still cries out. And at the end of that book, 
it ends on this question that we do see answered in the rest of scripture and in history. The question at the end of Lamentations is, has God forgotten, forsaken, and rejected Jerusalem? Is there comfort for Jerusalem? And we actually sing the answer to that from Isaiah 40 in a hymn every Advent. We sing, comfort, comfort, ye my people, speak of peace, now says our God. Comfort those who sit in darkness, mourning under sorrow's load. Cry unto Jerusalem of the peace that waits for them. Tell her that her sins I cover, and her warfare is now over. So the passage in Isaiah says, Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and all the rough places smooth. The last verse of that um, chapter of Isaiah 40, it sounds like Job too. It says, Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills on a balance? When Job brings his questions to God, and when he asks for an explanation, Job answers a lot like this. He asks Job another question. It says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. And the passage continues on, con- describing an entire cosmos of creations that human did, humans did not create, cannot comprehend. So it turns out to comfort Job isn't an explanation or an answer to his questions. It's an encounter with the living God. The same God whose encounter comforts Jerusalem and the same God that does offer comfort to the oppressed. So the suffering is real. The oppression is real. The looking around and in discouragement, looking for comfort, that's real too. Also real is a God who chose to be born even as we sometimes feel the betterness of not being born at all, we worship a God who chose birth, who chose to come and encounter the hurt and the suffering with us. The suffering hurts, the laments, the questions, and even the longing for death are all part of the human experience. But so is the offer of the living hope of the God who offers encounter instead of answers and who offers the only eternal true comfort, which is himself. So with that in mind, I invite you to um, come take some ele- the elements for communion.